always like this is how it, like every conspiracy theory dies it doesn't work is because like you have like these all-powerful like entities that control so many parts of the government but then they all get cracked by one guy reading primary sources on fucking youtube or like they had all the power to do all this shit but they didn't think of this one thing that would have saved them everything right like, all, just so all your politicians love you man they're just trying to do things for your own benefit they no, just okay, like really so have a lot in common that, like, with you i like how you're trying to make the claim that like our narrative is implausible when you're the one positing that Mueller was so corrupt that he was out to get Trump to overturn the results of the election, but then he released an, a document which exonerated Trump. And similarly, the Democrats were so concerned with overturning the results of the election that they cheated and manufactured all these ballots for Biden and still got fucking wiped out in the House of Representatives and the Senate. Well, it just seems that? like exactly. what what kind of like dumb fucks are concocting these conspiracies where they're like going halfway to like fuck over Trump, but then like they just decide to quit there and like that that's it like i i don't understand is there like no such thing as like nuance in the world hello plastic pills listeners today i'm joined by youtuber and political commentator mouthy infidel he is likely best known for his many online political debates on topics like should there be welfare, healthcare and redistribution, socialism and capitalism, and trans rights, as well as several other. In this wide-ranging discussion, Mothi and I touched on topics including the value of online debating, rationality in politics, good and bad versions of the left, Richard Wolff's views on socialism, and many more topics. I hope you enjoy. Well, Mothi and Fidel, thanks, uh, thanks a lot for coming on. I mean, I, you know, I didn't have specific things in mind that I wanted to talk to you, but I was just curious. I mean, on the, on our podcast, which I don't know how much you know about it, but like, you know, we're a bunch of uh, PhD students or actually two of us have our PhDs and then two of us are still working on our PhDs. And we mostly look at, we're mostly studying various forms of philosophy. Um, I don't know how much, I mean, you seem to be pretty good at arguing at least, but I don't know how much like actual philosophy reading uh, you've done. But yeah, you know, don't worry, not expecting us to go too much into the weeds. But you know, the reason I mentioned that is because uh, there's like two schools of thought in philosophy. I don't know if you're familiar with like continental versus analytic philosophy. Yeah, yeah I, like, I'm passingly familiar with the distinction. Yeah, Passingly familiar. Yeah, obviously, I think continental philosophy gets disparaged a lot for being unclear and, uh, you know, like full of kind of French and German elitism or something and, and impenetrable language. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been persuaded that I think there's a lot of value in both in both traditions. But in any case, we do tend to do uh, mostly continental, except the two political members of the podcast, me and Matt McManus. We both dabble a little bit more into analytic philosophy um, as well. But yeah, so we've done some episodes on like, I guess what people pejoratively call like debate bros or whatever. Right. And uh, I think we had Ben Burgess on to talk about that a little bit. But I thought it would be interesting to actually talk to somebody who does uh, do a lot of debates and you know i i think sometimes uh like people in academia like think it's weird that i love watching these debates so much i don't know like i sometimes think that there's like a bit of a i don't want to say like snobbishness exactly but i think some people get a little bit they're like you know why are you spending time watching these like debates that go nowhere and um you know i think the way sometimes i've explained it before in the past is you know, some people like to watch like Marvel movies. Some people like to do like whatever, watch reality TV shows. And like, I like to spend my time watching these like really uh, combative debates. Yeah. Well, there's also, um. so you're familiar with the debate that uh, Richard Wolf had with Destiny, right? Oh, yeah. Um, 
And there was a uh, interview that the Surfs did with Richard Wolf um, after that, which I I really liked something that Richard Wolf said. Where um, so the Surfs kind of brought up this point of like people were saying like, oh, you know, why would you even degrade Richard Wolf by putting him on this platform with a debate bro or whatever? Uh, and Richard Wolf said, you know, if uh, socialist ideas are you know just restricted to academia, then like our movement's never going to get anywhere, right? Um, so I think in a lot of ways, the the kind of like snobbishness that you're talking about can be pretty counterproductive. Yeah, no, I to- I mean, I totally agree with you. I think that it's 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 a way of disseminating the ideas. But I guess you know the worry is that most people watching the debate, and I'm sure this is true, right? Are are like very stuck to their specific ideological position. They're probably not going to be. But I know Destiny sometimes himself argues that there's like a 20%, which might be, in my opinion, a bit optimistic. I think it's probably less than that, um, that like are are willing to be turned. But, you know, I did. I was hoping we could start. I'm curious just like what got you into doing debating and making YouTube videos? Like, how did that all start for you? Like, what was kind of the trajectory? Um, yeah, so it's funny because I've actually been making YouTube videos about politics since I was like 12 Um, When I was like really, really young, I started reading um, Failed States by Noam Chomsky. Uh, That was the first thing that I ever read like politically. And that was really interesting to me. Um, So I kind of just went down the political rabbit hole very, very young. And um, so I I did uh, YouTube videos for a while, but there really wasn't a market for it at the time and nothing ever really happened with it. And then I just kind of resigned to making essays and arguing with people on like, you know, niche social media platforms. Um, But then once there started to be a sort of resurgence of like, okay, people are actually interested in listening to people make videos and talk about politics. um, I started doing that. And um, I guess for me, debating is more just, it's not really a specific thing that I like to do. It's just more of a... um, it's just one of the ways that I can express ideas and engage with like different arguments. And that's really what I'm interested in. Right, right. So it's almost like a vehicle for you to just explore those ideas in a little bit more detail, right? And Yeah, exactly. And when you were initially on some of those other like, you know, fringe social media platforms, like what were those ones that you were like, like kind of just on comment boards, just back and forth? And then it kind of evolved from there where you would invite people to be like, well, let's get on and make a video about it. Or is that how, how it started or... Yeah, more or less. Yeah, I would argue with people in like comment sections and like threads on Reddit and on Instagram and stuff like that. Um, at one point, I started like uploading like short essays about politics on Instagram. And sometimes I would like debate people over like Instagram live. Um, wow. And eventually I decided to just do a YouTube channel about it. Interesting. You said you you started by uh, getting an interest in politics from reading that Chomsky book, you know, and I'm curious at that time, like before you read that, did you have some kind of like political predispositions or like, did you think about politics much? And like, just tell me a little bit about that. Um, I was very before that, I was sort of very just passingly familiar with political issues. Um, I would occasionally like watch videos on YouTube of like, you know, John Stewart or like, you know, Bill O'Reilly or Crossfire with Tucker Carlson and that other guy whose name I don't remember. Um, right. So I would sort of like watch some political stuff, but I didn't really have like strong opinions on it. It was more so just like an entertainment thing. Um, but yeah, yeah, sort of like reading Chomsky was the first thing that sort of pushed me to actually start to deep uh, dive deeper into it and like try and ground my positions, I guess. Yeah, that's cool. I think I had a similar experience. You know, I, I remember watching John Stewart and 
I think, you know, I'm, we're, I'm in Canada and I'm probably quite a bit older than you. I'm not sure actually how old you are, but, um, you know, I remember there was a time when Fox News wasn't available in Canada at all, but I would like hear about it. And I remember we got it like um, we like when digital cable was becoming a bit of a new thing, like back in the early 2000s. And I was I was pretty young and I remember we subscribed. We had Fox News and I remember just being so fascinated by the like the level of like of sensationalist rhetoric that was going on there. Like it was almost just I got pl- it was weird. I like so disagreed, but I couldn't take my eyes away from it. Yeah, definitely. That was, I wonder, that was sort of my experience for a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that's like, it, it seems like most people aren't actually that interested in, in exposing their views to scrutiny. And uh, like, I think most people find it quite unpleasant to watch things like that they, that they adamantly disagree with. And it's, it seems to be like a weird quirk of, of some random chance that, you know, you and I maybe have this disposition where we derive some pleasure from it. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, for sure. There's there's a lot of people who like um, insofar as they watch content where their ideas are being engaged, it's kind of more just a hate watch thing, you know, <laughs> um, like a lot of people will come to my debates that I'll do with, you know, name of various, uh, you know, odious right wing figure. And they'll just be like, oh, this kid needs to cut his hair. And like, it's, it's very <laughs> clear that there's not like a actual uh, motivation to be intellectually challenged, which is, uh, I guess, a bit disappointing. But I mean, it is how it is. Yeah, that is disappointing. And actually, that makes me think something else that occurred to me earlier when you were talking about, you know, the 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 value of debating as a vehicle for, you know, testing your ideas. And I did have a browse through like a lot of the debates um, you've done. And I think, you know, how I guess I was curious, you know, how often have you actually been satisfied by your by your debate partners where they actually tested your ideas in a meaningful way? So um, I (laughs) unfortunately, I can't name that many examples. Um, I guess I did a recent debate with um, uh, Euron Brook. And I thought that was interesting because it gave me sort of more of an insight into like, I guess, Randian thinking um, and where like my sort of moral predisposition would conflict with that. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's it's less common than uh, I would have hoped. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, would you would you not say that the majority of people that you end up engaging with are like, you know, potentially bad faith? Like, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, specifically, um, so I feel like um, a lot of the libertarians who I've debated, um, so like I debated um, a, a Dutch politician who's a libertarian and I debated Jaron Brook. Um, a lot of the libertarians I've debated seem to engage in good faith. Um, mm-hmm. I think when you get into the territory where it's like, you know, more like Trump type alt-right figures, um, that's where I sort of run into people who are less interested in making arguments and more interested in being like, oh, you know, you're autistic or you're gay <laughs> or um, yeah, that kind of territory. Yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. In fact, I think I discovered you because I saw that you did that debate with Destiny, uh, like the tag team one or whatever. And, and you know, I wonder if you'll agree with this, but, you know, I think Destiny has a bad reputation for some good reasons. Like, I, th- I I find that he's a little bit like, I think he can just be straight up mean sometimes, like unnecessarily, I would say. But I think that the core of of the views that he has, I often find myself agreeing with them. Not always, but like, I would say the majority of the time I do. But it almost seemed like you were presenting like arguments in a, in a way like I feel like you don't have the like the the meanness i guess that that destiny has but i feel like you you offer compelling arguments like i think destiny's 
usually good faith, but he he sometimes like gets I don't know how to put it, like just too too caught up in like trying to own or like catch the other person and like I don't know, what do you think about that? So, that's a big problem for I think debate culture in general. Um where and I think in part it's because um p- people criticize me for defending Destiny too much, but I genuinely think that um Destiny was sort of the epicenter that debate culture kind of originated out of. And I think that there are certain things about Destiny that a lot of people who liked Destiny even sort of grew these misconceptions and then tried to replicate them and then it became problematic. Um, So like what you mentioned with like a Destiny being like really focused on like gotchas and stuff. um, I think that can sometimes be true, but I think that Destiny generally engages in pretty good faith with regards to um, I think he's genuinely like when I've heard people make arguments that he can't refute, he will like shift his position, right? He's not somebody who I don't think is like or who I think is like refusing to actually engage intellectually. Um, but I, I do think that he can be a bit, uh, over, uh, inflammatory and over aggressive sometimes. Um, I, I think that's just kind of how he is. Um, yeah. but, um, I, I think that did have some utility, I guess, because when destiny kind of rose to prominence, it was the era of like, you know, people like Sargon of Akkad and these sort of super aggressive alt-right figures who kind of built this reputation around, you know, I'm a manly right-winger intellectual and none of the lib cucks will debate me because they're too afraid. Um, And so I think there might be some value in having people who are challenging ideas in a sort of aggressive kind of way like that. Um, but that's not yeah. personally how I like to approach it. It's just not, I, I just can't really approach it in that way. Like I'm just not interested in having sort of screaming matches, I guess. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, I you know, I have to say, I agree with you. Like, I, I actually do think that at the time, you know, when you put destiny into historical context, I think that's an important point, um, that, you know, he really was at, coming in at a time exactly as you say, where like these right wingers were dominating and he came in and kind of like gave them a taste of his own of their own medicine, except with actual arguments that were good. Uh, right. And, and I think exposed a lot of them. And, you know, he often I think I've heard him say about that 20 percent, which is probably smaller of people who are watching who are maybe willing to be moved, um, that the key he thinks is like when he can embarrass the person that they supposedly like, like that can maybe have some sort of impact where they'll be like, oh, the guy that I was kind of leaning towards, like his points kind of seem stupid and maybe. So, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. But I think also, like, you know, he calls people stupid a lot and idiots. And I just feel like he goes a little far with that sometimes. But um, but I do also think that most people who criticize him haven't actually spent the time to really, like, understand what his arguments are. There seems to be this really weird, like, mob mentality on the online left where... um in one way that that manifests is, like, the online left will just latch on to certain figures and then just completely dehumanize them and just like attack them relentlessly right like the one person who i think i'm guilty of doing this towards is dave rubin but that's more just because i think dave rubin is really funny like the things that he says is really funny um but like there's a lot of this like people will just decide you know i hate joe rogan or i hate elon musk and then it's like anything they do or anything they say there's just this giant twitter mob attacking them i mean yesterday actually um, me and Matt, uh, the two political guys from our podcast, we went on uh, the Vanguard podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with them. And uh, look, like they were both really nice guys. Um, I'm, I'm pretty fond of them. I probably disagree with some of their takes, but their audience, oh my God, their chat was like, like just because we were 
sort of what were we were arguing for is that like the left should be like outcome oriented. Right. And it's like, uh, I sometimes, I think I describe myself in my Twitter bio as a non nonpartisan leftist. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's a tendency to get emotionally attached to like certain labels. So like socialism, um, and you can even see this sort of weird distortion or fixation on labels happen in a different, an analogous example, which is like when everybody wanted to call Trump a fascist. Um, I think what we should be doing instead of calling people labels is just it, it's it's lazy to lean on the label because you forget what makes Trump actually bad. Like talk about what he's doing that actually sucks specifically rather than just being like fascist. When you just like hide behind the fascist label label, you get to be a lazy thinker and not actually realize and take to the front of your mind why what he's doing is actually bad specifically similarly for socialism i feel like rather than just fixating around the label we should be talking about specifically what kind of a society do we want to be building what kind of outcomes do we want i want a society where we can make as many people as possible fl flourish um and i and i don't really care how we do it right so like i'm gonna i'm agnostic or it's an empirical question right like how we're gonna do it best do it but like, so it might be the case that sometimes market solutions are are the thing. But yeah, obviously, when I was saying all this uh, on that podcast, a lot of the chat was just like, get these fucking centrists out of here. Get these like lib 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 cucks out of here. But yeah, I don't know if you have reactions to that. So um, there is this uh, phenomenon. Have you read um, or are you familiar with the book Politics is for Power? No, I'm not actually. So one of the points that's made uh, in that book is that if you look at people who engage with politics um, and you look at the way that they actually spend their time engaging with politics, um, it seems like all of the time people spend is focusing on sort of, you know, far away, important, but sort of far away headline issues and, you know, listening to just podcasts and reading stuff um, and almost no time is spent you know, sort of actually engaging in activities that might bring about change, like engaging in like local organizing or local elections or things like that. Um, and basically what he calls it is political hobbyism. And it's this idea that the way that people tend to engage with politics is less because they're concerned with actually making change and more just sort of, it's an exercise in self-identity, right? Um, and that gets really frustrating because sometimes you'll make arguments like, hey, um, or like you'll try to be pragmatic, for example, right? And you'll say like, hey, maybe we should, uh, like maybe we should not call ourselves social or something. Maybe we should just focus on policy. And then people will get really mad at that because the reason that they're interested in politics in the first place is because it's like their identity as socialist is like important mm. to them rather than like their actual desire to see the change that we talk about. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think it's... Uh... <clears throat> I think the identity point is is actually so important because I, I do think that there's a lot of uh, fixation on like kind of almost like an affective enjoyment uh, from being attached to a certain label and kind of the um, yeah one of my favorite fields of theory is like Lacanian psychoanalysis and uh, you know they, like in that view they off they the view often says you know we are struggling to find some stabilizing identity. And I guess we often get attached to these, what he calls master signifiers. <clears throat> and there's a lot of enjoyment derived by kind of constructing this fantasy in our mind that like, you know, underneath this master signifier, um, we can feel whole again if we just like, you know, affirm that identity as a, and then there's, 
And then obviously like people get very hostile when you try to kind of disrupt that sort of fantasy construction. I definitely agree with you. I wanted to ask also about, you know, like what's your educational background or your study background or your plans to study? Because it does, I mean, you seem pretty knowledgeable about philosophy. Is Are you self-taught or have you done any education on that? Yeah, so um, my education, uh, so at least so far, is that um, I barely passed high school, and then I've spent uh, a bunch of time like illegally downloading like studies and papers on like SciHub and like reading them for my own enjoyment. Um, that's pretty much been it. I'm basically I'm entirely self-taught. Yeah. Um, wow. Which I guess um, sometimes I run into certain problems or insecurities with that, where it's like, um, can I really feel confident in this position? Like, uh, like, yeah, but um, that's basically my educational background. Yeah. Well, you know, let me tell you a story like, uh, you know, that sounds very it sounds familiar what you're telling me, because uh, I can tell you that when I finished high school, uh, my my average was like d d minus like i was a terrible high school student i didn't i hated doing my homework especially when it's about stuff that i didn't care about i mean part of it was probably that i was just too young but i've kind of realized as i've gotten older that i feel like i need to have a really strong sense of autonomy or like self-directedness like i don't like to have set kind of um benchmarks for when i have to have some something done and i think in high school there's a lot more small assignments they have to hand in and i would just always fall behind so then in my in the city that I grew up in, in Ottawa, um, there's a university that had this um, kind of ability to enroll as a special student. So like I didn't really know what I was doing with my life. I think I was probably like five years out of high school. And I was like, OK, well, I'll enroll as a special student. And uh, basically you do two courses per semester. And then if you do well on those, then they'll admit you full time based on kind of like how well you do. And I took like some philosophy courses and it like totally changed I, I all of a sudden felt motivated. It's like, all I have to do is write this one essay by a certain time and I can do it however I want. Like it just really changed. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's, I think sometimes these things can come a little bit later. So it seems like in a lot of your debates, the, the thing that really stood out to me is, you know, you have a, a quite a, a strong <clears throat> um, recall of, of, of studies, right? Like you, you often come armed I noticed this move where you'll be like, you know, this person has re done really good research on this and like you'll start naming like studies. So how do you prepare? What's that process like for you if you're if you're going to debate somebody um, like how much reading do you do? Like, do you take notes like what's and do you have them in front of you at the debate? Like what what does that look like? Uh, yeah. So um, I have a, a strong belief in the necessity of like. I guess, examining empirical research before forming opinions on like the efficacy of certain policies um, or things like that. And I guess the reason is it, it seems like throughout history, there have been so many times where we just like intuitively think a certain thing. And then upon further investigation, like it turns out to be wrong uh, because there are just certain, uh, the world is so complex that there's always going to be certain factors that like our intuition is uh, just not well equipped to take into account. Um, so like, for example, the argument against the minimum wage has always been, um, well, we can't raise the minimum wage because wages are set by supply and demand in the labor market. And so raising it would cause businesses to no longer be able to afford as many workers. Um, 
but then it's like the the problem with that is that that model is overly simplistic and it doesn't take into account things like monopsony where because uh, there's such high concentration in labor markets labor markets uh, or wages are actually set below what they would be set in a free market um, and by like strict supply and demand mechanisms and so there actually is room to raise the minimum wage without causing disemployment um and I could go on for like examples of this kinds of thing for like forever. Um, but right. I guess that's just why I think like looking at empirical evidence rather than just relying on intuition is really important when I'm coming to my positions. Um, so when I'm thinking about any given issue, whether that be, you know, what, what do I think about like trans issues even, or what do I think about a certain economic policy or a certain economic concept? Um, I'll generally spend like a lot of time trying to read all of the studies that I can find on a given issue. Um, and I'll like take notes notes, I'll be like, okay, so this study says this, and this is the basic methodology that it used. Um, and I'll try to like compare different studies, see what the consensus generally points to. Um, sometimes like if I'm, if I have like a debate that I'm like really nervous for, sometimes I'll like write out like a research document. Like I did this for the Euron Brook debate where I kind of like have all of the sources that I think I'll need, uh, in front of me so I can bring it up. Um, but usually I don't, usually it's just kind of memory based, right? Like, um, if someone's making the point that like socialism or redistribution suppresses entrepreneurship, I'll be like, oh, I remember I read all these papers by Gareth Olds that said mm. that it actually increases entrepreneurship by giving people more economic security. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of like that. That seems like an, an unusual uh, high aptitude to be able to do that. Like, I don't think that I could be able to, to memorize that stuff and, you know, I mean, you don't have to answer this, but it's just it's funny to me that you're able to to memorize to remember all these things and recall them. But you said, you know, high school was 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 a bit of a challenge. Was it just because you didn't care about high school or like or this stuff? more or less? Yeah, I have like I have like pretty bad ADHD. So like it's hard for me to bring myself to do things or learn about things if I'm not like genuinely really interested in them. Um, so like when it comes to like algebra, it's like, I don't care. Like, I, I just don't care. Um, and so when it's like, I have to do my algebra homework, it takes like an incredible amount of like willpower to bring myself to do that. And more often than not, I would just end up like just not being able to bring myself. Um, but when it comes to, I guess, political issues, um, politics is just something that I have like super, um, a super high level of, I guess, curiosity about and interest in. Um, and so when I'm like reading papers and writing them down, um, it's less of like a task and more of like I'm doing it for fun because I'm fulfilling some like curiosity that I have, I guess. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, that makes sense. It, I mean, like I said, I think it resonates with me a lot. I think I had somewhat of a similar experience. I was never diagnosed with ADHD, so I have no idea if I have that, but I still, you know, even now as a, as a doctoral student, you know, and I actually did two master's degrees because I was like very indecisive about what I was going to do. I did one in urban planning and I also did one in philosophy. Um, and then now I'm in, uh, now I'm in political science and doing political theory as kind of, a uh, like a middle ground, I guess, between planning and philosophy or something. I don't know. Like I have to build in like probably 60% procrastination time into my expected time of doing actual work. Uh, even now it's like very, uh, I don't know. It's worked out for me and I've gotten this far. So, so hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll continue, but yeah. Um, I was, you know, I know you sent me before you, you'd written this essay about, about, um, you know, uh, Richard Wolf's view. And, uh, you know, I thought maybe we could talk about that a little bit if you're interested, like, 
So maybe could you run down like the basic argument? I mean, I, I know I really like Richard Wolf, and I remember the first time I came across him, I think I watched a Google Talks that he had on YouTube, and I thought he makes very compelling, interesting arguments. But ultimately, like, you know, there's some ambiguity about in what, what ways is he actually advocating for like kind of a socialist social transformation as opposed to just like being a champion of like worker democracy. So I don't know, maybe you could run down some of the tensions you identified in, in, in him. Yeah. So um, I guess my issue primarily comes in his uh, model that he advocates for of uh, market socialism. Um, so his critique um, of central planning is one that I agree with. And his critique is that um, if you have like a centrally, a, a highly centrally planned economy like that in the Soviet Union, um, there is no meaningful, workers don't really have much meaningful power over where they work, right? It's still a highly authoritarian structure within the workplace. Uh, and that creates all sorts of problems, right? Like when workers feel like they don't have power over their work, they become alienated, there becomes political tensions and inequalities. Um, and that's all very harmful, right? And so I think that's mm -hmm. a very valid critique of central planning. Um, and I guess his proposed alternative, I think, goes too far in the other direction, where um, all businesses are just solely run by the workers. Um, and the revenues of businesses just accrue and are distributed solely by the workers who work at those um, firms. Um, and I guess the two problems I have with that are that really they're just two problems with capitalism in general that I don't think worker co-ops necessarily fix. Um, the first is that if you have revenue being distributed by the workers in a given firm that's producing the revenue, um, and they, they are the ones who distribute it amongst themselves, that certainly is going to reduce inequality within the firm, right? Now there's no longer a CEO who's getting all of the revenue and a bunch of workers who are getting table scraps. So it reduces inequality in that, in that sense, but it does not reduce inequality between different firms, right? So even in a sort of worker co-op economy, different worker co-ops are going to vary massively in how profitable mm -hmm. they are, right? And so there's still going to be certain workers who work for a highly profitable co-op, some workers who work for less profitable co-ops, and there's going to be a lot of economic inequality in that respect. Um, the other issue that I have is when it comes to internalizing uh, externalities where um, it seems like one of the major problems with capitalism is that firms act in the interest of the firm, even at the expense of acting in the interest of society broadly. Um, so like, uh, like climate change is a good example where like firms will pollute the environment because polluting the environment is profitable for them, but it hurts society, but they don't care because that cost to society doesn't show up on their balance sheet, right? Um, and the same is true with a worker co-op, right? Like I see no reason why a worker co-op fossil fuel company would have any less of an incentive because it's still going to be the case that those workers in the co-op, uh, even if it's a democratic profit, they're still going to be profiting from polluting the environment and they're not going to internalize the social cost. Um, and so, yeah, I guess those are my problems. And then my alternative, which I guess we can get into a bit more if you want, but just vaguely my alternative is um, you have worker power through unions and through co-determination policies where like maybe workers have certain representation on like boards of directors or workers have certain amounts of shares. Um, and then on the alternative side, um, you have state control in some sense in terms of nationalization of certain industries. Um, but then obviously we want the market in some industries. And so where we have a market 
market, you have sort of indirect state uh, ownership through a, a social wealth fund where the state buys up stocks and the competing mm. companies in the market um, and can internalize externalities in that respect. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I never like thought about the social wealth fund, but I did want to ask something about you know, the critique of, I think you're right. Um, I'm convinced that obviously the like Wolf's proposal, right? The, there's going to be inequality between firms, but like, I'd be curious, what's, is that, how is that a bad thing? Um, to what extent is inequality unjustifiable? To what extent maybe is it justifiable? Or like, how do you see that in this context? Um, yeah. So I guess this sort of gets deeper into like my broader, um, moral framework, right? Um, and I guess kind of the way that I think about it is inequality isn't always bad. Um, but generally speaking, I think inequality creates um, problems, uh, firstly, in that it can be harmful to social cohesion, right? Like if mm -hmm. there's some people who are much more rich than other people, that creates conflict between those two groups of people. Um, also, if wealth and income is distributed massively unevenly, people who get more of that wealth, therefore, are able to garner more political power, which I think is also problematic and is um, toxic uh, to democracy. Um, I think um, when you have large amounts of inequality, you have situations where people on the lower end of that aren't as able to sort of participate in society, right? Um, to, a, to a degree that they find fulfilling. Um, this is actually an argument that Marx made that I uh, really like, which is um, if you have like a bunch of people and they all live in like a small hut, right? Then the person who lives in the small hut is going to be like, oh, okay, whatever, this is, this is fine because this is like the norm. But then if you have a situation where like three people live in a hut and then a bunch of people live in a mansion, then the people in the hut are going to be like, oh, wait, what's going on here? And all of a sudden they're, there's, they're going to be more dissatisfied, right? Because right. of that inequality. Um, and this is why researchers actually, um, a lot of people criticize um, the relative poverty metric because they think it's sort of a measure of low end inequality. And to, mm -hmm. in, a, in a respect it is, right? Like relative poverty is just measured by if you're like, I think 50% low below the medium income. And the reason we do that is because it's a meaningful to talk about how many people are barred from participating in like the basic norms and activities that you're expected to participate when you live in a certain society. Um, so I think inequality can be harmful to all those respects uh, or yeah. in all those respects. Yeah. I agree with that for sure. I think, but I guess it's the, you know, the question is, you know, what are the conditions when it is justifiable, right? Because I guess there is a certain sense in which, you know, people are obviously going to have different potential talents and, and like and like they're going to have people are going to have more or less favorable, for example, psychological dispositions. Um, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with like Rawlsian arguments, right? Like, you know, the veil of ignorance the and stuff. I'm principle, yeah. The difference principle. I'm curious, like, how does that set like or do you find that to be a convincing argument or, or would you want stronger equality than that? Um, yeah, no, I, I actually generally do agree with the Rawlsian difference uh, principle, like um, inequality can be justified insofar as it's beneficial to like the least well off people, right? So like, if paying doctors more means that there's more doctors, and that's helpful to, you know, all the poor people who need doctors, and they're better off, um, as opposed to if doctors were paid less, then of course, um, I think that inequality is justified. Um, but I guess I don't, so I don't trust the market, um, even a co-op market, to uh, create inequalities on that basis, right? Like um, in a co-op market, inequality is just going to be 
is going to be created on the basis of which firms uh, the market decides are more profitable than other firms, right? Rather than which inequalities are actually beneficial to people. Yeah, right? no, that makes that makes sense. And I guess the idea of um, wealth funds, as you mentioned, maybe you could say a little bit more about that because I'm curious. But um, I guess the idea would be that those kinds of sort of institutional implementations would be um, a way of, of getting to like that sort of Rawlsian difference principle, or it could be a way. Yeah, it could be. Um, because basically what you have when you have a social wealth fund is um, a lot of the shares in a, corp- uh, in a given company are owned by the state. And so when a company generates revenue, rather than just going to either a CEO or the workers in that firm, a lot of that revenue goes directly to the state to be like redistributed, right? Um, and so this is beneficial in terms of inequality. So like, um, Okay, so like one example that I could give is um, I've mentioned inequality between firms. Another thing I could mention is inequality between people who work in general and people who don't work in general, right? Um, And this is a problem that's often underestimated by a lot of people, um, because if you actually look at the statistics, about half of the population, like 50% of the population are classified as non-workers, like people who don't work. Um, And most of those most of that 50% are is people who don't work because they're disabled or they're elderly or they're children or they're caretakers or students. Um, generally people who not only aren't working, but shouldn't be working. Like we as a society shouldn't expect them to work. Um, and so under a market system, sort of there is no way unless you have like a sort of a welfare state, right? Um, there's no way to distribute money to non-workers, right? Because all the money that businesses are generating is going to the workers, even in a co-op system in that firm. Um, And so the idea of a social wealth fund is that a lot of the revenue is going to the state, and then the state can redistribute that revenue uh, among the population in ways that are democratically determined. Um, And so I think that puts us in a better decision or in a better position to uh, uh, decide democratically to uh, distribute revenue in ways that we determine would make society better, rather than in ways that the market determines. Right, and then what? And what do you? Th- what kind of democratic mechanism do you think would work? So would that be like, I guess, implementing some sort of worker democracy, or or like just like, do you think electoral politics? I guess is my question is sufficient for that, or do we need some some further forms of democratization? Um. So I generally advocate for um, I, I generally advocate for like representative democracy, but sort of I guess furthering um, how democratic that is, right? Um, and one way to do that is obviously you can have like laws that outlaw things like lobbying. Um, you can have laws that limit inequalities so that you know there's uh, the government is more representative of everyone rather than just people who have disproportionate amounts of economic resources. Um, You can even do that through unions. Uh, There's one example um, that I like to bring up from Finland where there is, I think a prime minister, I might uh, butcher this story, but I think there was like a prime minister who tried to cut pay for a certain group of workers and that's like, I mean, in America, that would be like nothing, right? Like that happens all the time. Hmm. Um, but in Finland, uh, that was so uh, not well received that there was a general strike, right? 
And what we have to remember is that in Finland, unions cover like 91% of workers, right? And so unions were so large that the workers could say, hey, no, you can't cut pay. We're going to go on a general strike. And as a result, that prime minister had to um, resign, right? Um, And so that's just one example of sort of having, building up alternative structures like unions and community organization structures um, can sort of be a check against the uh, uh, power of the state or can make the state be more meaningfully representative of, I guess, the will of the people, if you want to put it in those terms. Yeah, no. Um, one of the things that's, you know, I think the left sometimes doesn't talk about or enough, I think, is and I guess maybe I have a bias because this is something we study in political science all the time is just like the institutional makeup of American politics is just so bad that like to make a change like that, like, <clears throat> you know, the fact that it has so many veto points, right? If you know what that means, right? There's just so many places where legislation can stop that, you know, even if Bernie Sanders would have won and been president, it's like the difference it would have made would have been like foreign policy and like some executive orders, but like structural change, just, it would have made almost no difference. Like, like I mean, I think, I mean, maybe it would have, it would have made a symbolic difference, right? It would, it would have seemed like there was something, you know, and I think one of the differences um, in Canada, like, you know, our system's not perfect for sure. Uh, there's, there's problems with it, but I think pro- parliamentary systems, broadly speaking, what's good about them is when a party wins the, all the seats, they just get to do what they said they were going to do. Right. Like they actually have legislative freedom. And then, you know, you might get like we had before Trudeau, we had like 10, 11 years of like Harper conservatism. And it's like, yeah, it was kind of bad, but at least he got to do what he wanted to do. And then we got to see it. And then we got to actually judge whether we liked it or not. Right. Whereas in the States, it's like nobody actually gets to do anything. So everyone's just blaming everyone else for nothing happening. And I guess like that seems like such a like big puzzle about how do you overcome that? I mean, how do you change the institutions? I mean, it seems almost fucking impossible. I mean, it's. it's Yeah. So I think that there's a part of that that I um, do agree with. I, I think that in a large part, the way that the American government was constructed was like a very sort of checks and balances oriented thing where like this, the sort of the intention was that, you know, there has to be, we have to sort of force some level of compromise in order to do things because, you know, we don't want, you know, if someone gets elected, we don't just want them to be able to do whatever. They have to get approval from the courts and from Congress, et cetera. Um, when it comes to um, how we deal with that, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, I'm not really sure. I mean, it's probably, it, it would probably be better if we had a system where people could more easily do things. Um, I am sympathetic to that argument. Uh, When it comes to how to deal with that, um, I would say realistically, um, we're just we're very far away from being able to do anything like abolish the Senate or abolish the Supreme Court or anything like that. Um, I don't think that's happening uh, anytime soon. So, I mean, the best thing that we can do at this point is um, just try and get more people on the left elected. in Congress, uh, try and run more AOCs in places where, you know, progressives, like in places like New York, where uh, progressives can reasonably get elected and just hope that over time we can grow a a stronger sort of electoral um, presence of the left, I guess. I mean, I think that that really is all you can do. And I think uh, the reason why the sort of institutional observation is important is because Already the stuff that they say sometimes when they're trying to, I don't know, force the vote and do all these th- these things that are kind of cringy. If you really like hold firm or you hold in the front of your mind like these institutional 
barriers, it's like, you know, it, that seems even more stupid. I feel like it's like you have to just you can't have like these radical demands are just so frustrating because, yeah, it is just going to be that boring work of, you know, um, the, tr the tr treasury of trying to get like grassroots people elected as much as you can. But, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not an easy path. I mean, uh, you know, to some extent, I'm not all that optimistic. Um, about, no, I about, totally about agree with you. Um with regards to a lot of people on the left sort of have a fundamental misunderstanding of like how our government works. Um, and I guess this can most be seen on sort of the, I guess, like a Jimmy Dorish side of things where there's a lot of talk about like, oh, why hasn't AOC done this? Why hasn't even, why hasn't Biden do this? Why didn't Obama do this? Um, and they sort of take the fact that like AOC hasn't unilaterally enacted Medicare for all. And then they run with this rhetoric of like, oh, AOC is a traitor. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, no, I mean, we have to understand that there are limits to what our elected officials can do. Um, even a more sort of, um, I guess, another example of this would be like a lot of um, people will be like, well, why didn't Obama? They'll be like, well, Obamacare is insufficient. Why didn't Obamacare pass a single payer healthcare system? And it's like, well, there are valid critiques of Obama, but even if he wanted to pass single payer, it would have never happened. He just, he didn't have the votes, right? Yeah. Um, there's a narrow majority in Congress and even the Democratic Congress people were like almost entirely against a single payer. Um, so yeah, I do think it's important to sort of give our politicians at least more leeway or like more understanding insofar as like the conditions that they're working with rather than just doing these sorts of knee-jerk attacks that a lot of people try to do. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, I think one of the problems too, back to earlier, we were talking about sort of the psychology of the sort of enjoyment and pleasure people get out of, you know, like kind of being radical or whatever. And I think that plays so strongly with this, you know, it's just, it's so fun to condemn people, right? Like that's such a that's such a strong like and relevant cognitive bias in our political discourse that like you just have to notice how much fun you're having when you get to condemn people. And it's actually like a little bit less, I guess, libidinally or psychologically satisfying to be uh, to be like, I don't know, a, care a careful thinker or, or at least it seems it seems that way anyway. I mean, it's just I don't know. It's almost like um, there's this old uh, right wing term uh, of like virtue signaling. Right. It's almost like that where it's like. It feels better to just condemn people like AOC because then you get to say, "Oh, I'm the most radical one. I'm the I'm the real lefty. Everyone else is a fake lefty." And it, it it's sort of like a, a self-flagellatory thing, I guess. Yeah, it's it's also kind of I think related to sort of in, implicit ideas of moral purity, right? It's like uh, people don't want to contaminate their their morally righteous perspectives that they so enjoy, uh, right? With by by being. Um, you know, in, in, in um, contaminating it by compromise, right? It's such a dirty word. I mean, I, I know, I mean, it's fresh in my mind because I was on the Vanguard yesterday, but I remember somebody in the chat was like, uh, I think Matt was talking about incrementalism, about how like sometimes that's important and like, oh my God, the hatred for like even mentioning the word incrementalism was, was yeah, it was insane. So I recently read, well, uh, audiobook. I don't know if you ever listen to audiobooks, but I, I sometimes do because I feel like if I'm not worried, if not, I can only really afford to actually read things that are related to my dissertation. So any other pleasure reading, I kind of just like do with Audible. But um, I don't know if you heard about it recently. This uh, this book that came out called uh, The Scout Mindset by Julia Gallif. I think you'd really like it. Um, basically, like she makes this argument for like it's basically about cognitive biases and how to kind of try to overcome them. 
And she says that, like, usually when we argue, the metaphor we use is, like, soldier mindset, right? Where it's like, I'm going to defend my position. I'm going to attack. Like, all the metaphors are, like, about war. Debunk, yeah. Debunk, right? And uh, and then she and she says, you know, actually, we should try to cultivate what she calls a scout mindset, meaning what's a scout doing, right? Just surveying the world and creating a map and then revising the map as you go along, as opposed to just, like, being a soldier mindset, scout mindset. And um, it's I really like the metaphor. I think uh, it, it was very compelling. And one of the examples she brings up, she actually brings up some political examples. And she talks about how, like, the soldier mindset is so entrenched in political discourse and hostility. And I think she, she talks about how during the AIDS epidemic, when it was new, a lot of the activists who were, like, really angry at, um, you know, the government. And I think at that time it might have been Reagan or Bush, Bush the first. I can't remember. It was one of those two. And they weren't really paying that much attention to it, right? Because at the time, of course, it was perceived to just be like a gay plague, right? Pejoratively. And like, who cares? Um, so there's a lot of activists who wanted to push for more research. And, uh, and you know, they they did all their like cringy political tactics, right? Where they're being like, in the, with this logic of like angry opposition. I think they like chain themselves to like the desk of like the head of the NIH, like the National uh, Institutes of Health to like do more research, Right. But like, obviously nothing happened. But then like they decided, they realized that they had to try something else. So they started looking into the research, right? Like specifically learning about how it works and then like coming to them with an alternate proposal of the kind of research that could be done. And they basically entered into the system. And what's interesting about it is like a lot of the activists, the heads of the activist organizations kind of admitted and talked about how like kind of def initially how deflationist it felt to kind of be part of the system when before they were like deriving a lot of kind of enjoyment and power from taking these righteous stands but what it resulted actually um be because of their research and their insights it actually resulted in the research t changing directions and actually leading to like i forget what it's called prep or whatever these drugs are that people use for who have aids that can basically bring your viral load down to zero and it resulted from them kind of compromising and entering into the system and she talks about it as an example of kind of like scout mindset of how you kind of have to you know try to see the world the way it is not the way you want to see it right and i think the righteous attitude sometimes is, is based on that um right yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah i think you'd like the book um so you might you you might enjoy checking it out um the other thing i was curious about is you know i wonder if i could persuade i mean i'll see if i can persuade you of something i have like kind of a hot take on democracy i mean i don't know how hot it is it's like very very academic -y, so i'll see if i can like explain it persuasively here but basically like i think electoral politics uh create very perverse incentives um <clears throat> especially american electoral politics so, I mean, we can go through a list of perverse incentives that are created, but I think a lot of them are pretty obvious. So, like, I'm, and I'm sure you've thought of them, you know, like party discipline, right? Like the fact that often politicians are elected and they have a motivation to just be loyal to the party. They have a motivation to kind of work their way up the party hierarchy, right? And you have to think about this in contrast with the kind of the, the incentive towards, I guess we could say, um, social empowerment or egalitarian values or the common good right these are all the things that we would hope that our politicians are doing but i think that there's so many perverse incentives so that's one obviously the the, the incentive to be reelected is a huge one like i think that prevents politicians from from being oriented towards social empowerment you know fundraising right like another one um 
Also, this is another really big one, right? The fact that they are often attuned to trying to make the other side look bad. So there, you might get into a situation, right, where both parties know that the evidence is like good on some policy proposal. But then if they see that the other party is trying to pass it, they don't want to give that other party an, elect- uh, an electoral victory, right? They don't want to make the other party look good. So there's an incentive to actually stop. Um, so there's a few other ones, but but like those kinds of perverse incentives have kind of led me to think, to return actually to ancient Athens and think that maybe we should be getting rid of um, electoral politics and replacing it with something called sortition, which would use random sampling and it would be kind of like jury duty, except it would we might call it civic duty. So people, there would be no elections, and you'd get a random representative sample of the population, and they would be selected to come and serve in some like legislative body. It, like there's obviously a lot of details that we would have to go into about you know how it would work, but you know, um, you know I think that they would have all the kinds of resources that a currently elected person would have, right? Like they would have a staff, they would have researchers. Um, there would be like legislative rules. There'd be like an oversight committee. But the idea behind that would be that it would, re- it would, the, the reason I find it appealing is because it would eliminate all those perverse incentives, right? So there would be no, because there'd be no incentive to be reelected because you can't be reelected, right? Um, and you could only ever serve once. So I wonder just initially, how does that sound on your ears? Uh, yeah. So um, there are, I think that sounds interesting and, in the sense that it seems to overcome certain valid uh, observations that you made about certain flaws of electoral democracy. Um, I guess the question, of course, uh, just ultimately comes down to, would this system have its own flaws that sort of supersede that? Um, And thinking about what those may be. um, So one example that I could think of is, so it might be the case that democracy provides some mechanism through which the people who are creating policy, um, uh, like people, are, there's a certain filter there where like certain people are filtered out who like we wouldn't want making public policy, right? So like, um, for example, maybe um, like we wouldn't want like Jeffrey Dahmer um, as our president, right? And a democracy kind of addresses that because, you know, if people have to vote, nobody's going to vote for Jeffrey Dahmer if they know he kills people, right? Um, yeah. But it seems like one of my concerns would be like, if you're just picking people randomly and there's no filter for uh, who it can be, like what's to stop like someone being elected who's just like a complete psychopath, right? Or, or something like that. Um, I, I guess that'd be like one of my concerns. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a good concern. I mean, I think you're actually raising, as I see it, um, there's two strong objections to it. And I think you've kind of hit on one of them, which is you could broadly call it competence. Right. So it's like what like uh, we have to worry about the competence of these. I mean, I, I would imagine that there would be similar filters that you have for jury duty. Right. So like, you know, like obviously jury duty has a filter where, yeah, you can be randomly selected. But, um, you know, if you have like, I don't know, psychopathic tendencies or something you'd expect that those people would be filtered out but i think like one of the really interesting advantages of sortition is you know right now who's who's in congress right it's like lawyers it's like you know do we want that to be the people who are just like deciding what is in the 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 common good where are the where's working class representation right so like if it's actually a representative sample of people you would expect that you would have a, a, a roughly equal number of working class people in there to 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 uh to express their interests. So I don't know. Does that seem compelling to you? Yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> I guess I just have a sort of a, a visceral feeling of like maybe this is just me being elitist, 
but I don't know, like a lot of the people I've like, I just, I've interacted with on my day-to-day life. Like it sounds very scary to have these people being the ones who are making decisions in a sense where it's like, um, there's so many people, I would say the vast majority of people, um, in America are people who just like have no familiarity with politics and are just like, you know, very, um, very emotional in their reactions to things and like couldn't really substantiate any of their positions on anything. Um, and I guess it just, it's just worrisome. I feel like maybe democracy provides some kind of a filter where it's like, um, uh, uh, people who are being elected are people who at least have some competence with regards to political issues, I guess. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's, that's a valid concern, you know, there's some anecdotal examples that I could offer. Um, so I think the most prominent one is in the province of British Columbia. I think in like 2007 or 2008, there was um, a citizens council that was selected according to sortition to consider electoral reform. So they were like looking at changing from first past the post right to like a proportional representation system. So they wanted to, to assemble a citizens council and it was it was selected on uh, according to sortition. And I think what what's interesting about that example is like you had people come in and they had the status quo bias where they were like, you know, I, let's just stick to the system. It's what I know. I don't understand what mixed member proportional is. I don't understand what single transferable vote or all these complicated things are. Right. But then like when they took the time to examine the policy issue, right, and they're presented with experts on both sides who kind of explain to them similar to the way you have like a, a prosecution and a defense on, on in, a, in jury duty, right, in, in, a, in a criminal trial. And uh, what you ended up having happening at the end of that was like it went from something like, I don't know, 20 percent being open to change to like 90 or 80 percent people who were like, yeah, we have to change it. All the advantages of proportional representation way outweigh. So, like, I guess the the idea would be like, I agree with you that people are very like low information and like are scary. But I think that one of the problems is because people don't have right now the incentive to actually read up and look at an issue. And I think that if you're selected for a sortition assembly, and we assume that they're going to get paid for this, right? They're going to get the same salary as a, like what an elected representative gets now, right? I think there's going to be an incentive to actually examine the issue. And, uh, you know, in, in some other examples, similar to the British Columbia one, people talk about, you know, how they felt a sense of responsibility. Like they felt like, oh, like, the, um, you know, and I think you you see similar um, things occur in jury duty, where people actually feel a real sense of responsibility. Now, don't get me wrong; jury duty has its problems. Like there there are documented issues with it, but I guess like you know when you compare how bad electoral democracy is, I'm like I'm sort of persuaded that I think that it it could be an interesting solution. So I don't know if that. What do you think about that? Yeah, um, yeah, it's definitely an interesting potential solution. I would have to think about it a bit more. I guess um, I just yeah, I don't know how it would work out. Um, yeah, there's another thing I've heard of, uh, or another model I've heard of, um, that may be interesting, um, which is like the idea is that you have sort of like, um, like councils that are designated to like certain aspects of policy, right? So you might have like a healthcare policy council or like a foreign trade policy council. And, um, you have like the population, like the democratic population vote like via direct democracy on sort of like broad uh, policy proposals and then Mm -hmm. it's like councils of experts who are just sort of tasked with taking those broad proposals that people voted for and then turning them into like actual like working policy i guess well that's interesting yeah i haven't so that's so the idea would be like people like everyone would would be eligible to vote for something yeah i mean that's interesting that's like expanding direct democracy 
Um, and I think, you know, it's funny because my problem with like that kind of direct democracy and the reason why I like sortition better is because I worry about the low information voter, right? Because because if everyone is getting to vote in direct democracy, then really the low information voter is actually a real threat. Whereas like my thinking is when you when you have a, a random sample that's representative, then those people are actually going to be incentivized to be high information voters, right? And it's like that's a problem that I see direct democracy happening where like low information voters threaten good decisions. And I feel like sortition is like a solution to that problem in my, uh, that's my thinking about it anyway. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, if you're curious, I could tell you too, what the other, uh, like the other main objection to sortition, I guess is like, oh, yeah, um, sure, go for it. Mm -hmm. um, is, uh, um, I guess democratic legitimacy, right? It's like the fact that only people selected have an input like it kind of creates a problem of democratic legitimacy. So it's like if if like the rest of the public really hates something that the sortition chamber does, like how is there a way to is there a way to overcome that? Right. Like the and, and something feels wrong about that. Right. Like so you're saying if I don't get picked, I just have no say in what gets decided. Right. Like that seems bad. And I guess like the solution that I that I propose to that would be um to kind of adopt a Swiss model, a Swiss augmentation of the system where maybe you could have like if you collect 100,000 or whatever, however many signatures, you could trigger an automatic referendum. But I would want it to, to undo what the sortition chamber did, but it would have to reach a very high bar. Like I would want it to have like 80% voter participation and like 60% majority or something like a clear majority and high voter participation. So that's, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's my thinking about that issue if you find it interesting. No, I think that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I would have uh, to think about it more because this is a, it would be a very like radical change. Yeah, it since, would be. Yeah, it would absolutely be a radical change. But uh, yeah, I kind of uh, I came across it when I was in this democratic theory seminar. And, you know, I just that problem of low information voters was like really on my mind. And, and it seemed like a compelling solution. But um, but yeah, so I was also curious, um, like what other stuff you've sort of been thinking about lately, because I know I think I saw you tweet yesterday and I responded, right, that you're you're going to be coming out with a video, maybe a video essay that you were happy with. I mean, you can if, if you want, I'd, I'd be curious if you want to preview some of the things you've been thinking about here. Oh, yeah. So um, it's kind of like a sort of a response to Ben Shapiro. Um, ben Shapiro made this uh, new show called Debunked, and he uploaded one of his episodes to YouTube um, and it's called debunked uh, transgender ideology, right? Oh God. Um, in other words, he's he's very upset the, uh, about trans people like requesting, you know, basic human rights, human dignity, et cetera. Um, and uh, he's kind of like the the core of that video is like he's kind of arguing like, oh, how absurd it is to say that a man could be a woman or some, you know, that kind of thing, right? Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about sort of the the claim that trans women are women the claim that trans men are men and i've been thinking about how to evaluate that how to argue for that and um my my sort of thinking is that um words obviously are just constructs that humans create for the purposes of our own utility um and a definition of a word right can't be like right or wrong or like definitionally right like um a, I think in order for something to be correct or incorrect, it has to be like a proposition, right? Yeah. And a definition of a word, it's not a proposition. It's just us choosing to define a word in a certain way. Um, and so if a definition of a word can't be right or wrong, then how do we evaluate 
what's the quote unquote right way to use a word. Um, and my sort of thinking about that is because words are just constructs that we create for our own, our own utility, the right definition of a word is just a definition that we derive the most utility from. Mm -hmm. um, and then so my argument would be that we get more utility out of a definition of woman, which is inclusive of trans women, because obviously trans people uh, suffer great psychological stress when they feel as though society isn't recognizing them as the gender that they identify with. Um, so that's sort of like my sort of from fundamental principles argument about the trans women are women claim, which is the sort of thing that Ben Shapiro was focused on uh, attacking, I guess. That's interesting. You know, um, it may, what you're saying makes me think about uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, if, you, if you're familiar with that philosopher, right? Like his argument is meaning is use, right? Like so like the meaning of a word is its use in a language game and a language game. Really, what he means by that is just kind of like forms of life like what we do in our life world like when we're just out there engaging with things we play different language games right like when you're with your friends or whatever or or whatever if i'm with my girlfriend and like you know i will speak about things and words might take on a different meaning because of the context right because of how i'm using it right and like i'm sure like you know if you're in a clique of friends right sometimes those little cliques of friends have special little meanings that are particular to that group of friends where they'll use something and it's kind of like an inside joke right so like there's kind of all these language games. And I think you're exactly right that it's sort of based on utility in the sense that, you know, th those games we play with words, you know, they're doing something, right? Like they're, they're kind of um, fortifying a form of life. Like, you know, my group of friends or like the world I create with my girlfriend or the world you create with your friends or whatever, right? Or your parents. It's like those games are part of kind of building up to that kind of like life world, right? So I think that's... That's interesting. So I think like that's a correct view, in my opinion, of language. I noticed that you I think you've had a couple of other videos. What's uh, and like you said, I didn't actually notice a video about Dave Rubin, but I know you mentioned him before and you, you kind of you kind of said apologetically that you uh, that you uh, belittle him. But you know what? Like, I think I think it's 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 fine to to like belittle people when you actually spend some time watching them. And I think I think, in my opinion, Dave Rubin is is worthy of, of some belittlement because he, he seems very like. He seems like such a grifter to me. I don't know, like... Yeah, 100%, yeah. Um, he's a huge grifter, and he's just like, I don't know, just the things that he says are so hilariously stupid that I can't, like, laugh about it. Like, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a video where Dave Rubin is like, um, he makes the argument, because he's talking about COVID, right? And he's talking about climate change. And he goes the left says that we should trust the scientists, but that's a stupid notion. Haven't you seen science fiction movies? There are evil scientists. Like that's like the <laughs> argument that he made. Yeah. It's <laughs> like unbelievable to me. Yeah. And then obviously there's the funny one of like Dave Rubin versus words. <laughs> that's, that's also a good one. Right. I forget what, there's a couple of really funny ones. Um, yeah. He just totally misuses. Oh, like I think the gaslighting one is hilarious. I forget what he claims gaslighting is, but it's hilarious. It's like that, that gaslighting is when you say something so crazy that it confuses your opponent or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I have no yeah, idea that's... where he got the definition from, but yeah, yeah, that's ridiculous. Um, cool. So I guess, I mean, do you have any questions for me or anything you're curious about? Oh, okay. So you, um, you talk in your, um, in your article that you wrote, uh, that you sent to me oh, yeah. about, um, sort of the issues of, um, like punitive justice versus restorative justice. Um, and I guess it, it's, it's interesting, um, to think about how 
those sorts of notions are often like, like people like on the online left, for example, will often pay a lot of lift service to like, you know, we support restorative justice, right? And then um, they'll act in ways which kind of betray that ethic, right? Um, yeah. Do you sort of, is that the sort of sentiment that you think you were getting at? Or is that something that you agree with? Yeah, it is the sentiment that I was getting at. I mean, I think, <clears throat> right, I think the idea, yeah, I forgot that I sent that to you. Um, that the, 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 in the article, I kind of make this argument that like sometimes the left has kind of forgotten about its its roots and what I see as the is roots in compassion, right? That like, I think the left is supposed to be, uh, I think, oriented towards, um, I guess, second chances and like, and like keeping front of mind the, the inherent humanity in everybody when possible, when reasonable. And obviously the, the left or some, like, I mean, what people call broadly the SJW left, you know, that there's, there seems to be a kind of, when someone disagrees with you, they're no longer worthy of compassion, right? But then obviously there's a lot of people who are prison abolitionists, right? Who think that criminals deserve our compassion. And I actually happen to agree with them, right? But I just think that compassion should be a, a leftist value that applies to everyone, even, even, you know, right wingers. And I think I also bring up an example in that article about, you know, people who were radicalized, like on the right, and how like, you know, we should try to welcome them back, right? And like, not not hate them if they if they if they change their mind, because I think people are just trying to find a, a place in this world. And then that's just a very human desire. I guess that kind of ties in with like, when people talk about like issues of like cancel culture or whatever. Um, I think cancel culture is a weird thing, because I feel like to some extent, cancel culture has and will always exist. Right. Mm -hmm. Like um, there's always going to be certain cultural values that any given society wants to reflect. And uh, the converse of that is there's always going to be certain values that society tends to disassociate with and condemn uh, people for. Um, but then I guess the question is like, how, where should the bar be? Right. Like what should we be willing to condemn? And it feels like we've gotten to this point where it's like, if you're like a soccer mom who like rapped the n-word along with like a rap song in her car one time then you might as well be like you know the grand wizard of the kkk or something and i think it's just like a very crazy space to be in where that's how we think about these things totally and i mean i think it, it it's so related to what we've talked about a few times with um you know what i've been referring to like the the pleasure of righteousness right like like i think so much of, of it stems from the kind of libidinal payoff, if you will, of, of just like of just like condemning people. It's it's certainly true that if we want to be like electorally successful or even just like convincing people, um, it would be a bad idea to frame every issue purely along, you know, this is going to help marginalized communities because whether or not, I mean, we should absolutely make that argument, but it shouldn't be the only argument, right? Because we also need to um, appeal to people who might be like white and very self-interested or, you know, maybe don't even care about like marginalized communities or whatever. Um, and so that being said, um, I'm a big advocate, I guess, of what I think is intersectionality. Um, I'm open to somebody telling me I'm using the word wrong or something. Mm -hmm. But basically my way of thinking is that there's a bunch of different axes of oppression, right? There's oppression along class lines, along racial lines, along gender lines, et cetera. And it's really important, like theoretically, to understand how all of these different axes are distinct, but like overlapping, right? Um, 
and kind of see like where they're where they separate, where they overlap. Yeah, that's so like, right. For example, like racial um, oppression can often overlap with class oppression. Like if you're in a poor black neighborhood, you might get more oppressed than someone who's, you know, more wealthy and black. Um, but at the same time, if you're someone who's more wealthy and black, you might still be more likely to get pulled over by a cop than someone who's more wealthy and white. Um, so I think there's sort of theoretical value to um, approaching it along that lines, right? Um, like focusing yeah. on racial oppression sometimes, but also kind of having a more general focus as well to kind of supplement that. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. Like, and you, I think you are using intersectionality correctly. I mean, I think it's just become such a, it's become a boogeyman because, I mean, the original article by Kimberly Crenshaw was just incredibly reasonable observation about the way the le- legal system impacts like people with intersecting identities. And like, you know, it's just very, uh, I mean, I don't want to say obvious because it was, you know, um, a, like a valuable literature at the time, but it's just like there's nothing wrong with that article like that, like at all. It's a pretty reasonable article, the original intersectionality one. So, yeah, I mean, I think I feel like we've covered a lot. So, yeah, that was really good. Um, you know, if people are if people don't know about you and want to find you, like what debate would you recommend? Like if if if, if you know, in your mind, if someone's going to discover mouthy infidel. Where's the first place that they should look? Oh, uh, geez, that's a good question. Um, it really just depends on uh, what kind of thing you're interested in. You know, if you're interested in like uh, social issues, I had a debate with um, on this channel, politically provoked with this guy named Big Papa Fascist that I thought was, um, uh, I guess, was received really well. I, I honestly, I just, I judge the quality of my debates based on how they're received because um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really watch my uh, stuff very frequently. Um, if you're more interested in like economic stuff, I had a recent debate with um, the chairman of the Ayn Rand Institute and author uh, Yaron Brook um, about uh, welfare, um, which I thought was uh, pretty fun. Um, but yeah, I guess those are the two things that come to mind in, in terms of like recent debates. Um, awesome, awesome, and yeah, we will put the uh, the link in the description. So. Uh... That's great. Thanks a lot, Mouthy Infidel. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. All right, cool. I'm going to stop recording here.